What's going on, world? Welcome to Changing the Narrative. This is a show where we discuss everything from politics, philosophy, theology, social issues, economics, and more from a biblical perspective. The main goal of this show is to find truth. What is the truth about all these matters, and how should we respond once we have a greater understanding of the issues? Let's discuss. Welcome back to Changing the Narrative. Today we have special guest, Dr. Frank Aida. He's a naturopathic physician with 20 years of experience of helping patients uncover and treat acute and chronic illnesses. He's also published a book recently called Taking Back Your Health. Thanks for coming on the show today, Dr. Yeah, Aida. Great to be here. Thank you. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. So um, I just wanted to start off with asking you, uh, what made you become a naturopathic physician as opposed to a conventional medical doctor? Okay, well, I'll go back in time a little bit. So when I was younger, I, I suffered from a lot of health, uh, health complaints, uh, a lot of asthma, allergies, digestive complaints. And, you know, I went to so many doctors, uh, you know, over the years, I went to, you know, allergists, GI doctors, and everyone just kind of poo-pooed it, gave me a medication and said, you know, um, no one ever talked to me about diet. No one talked to me about lifestyle. And I really just thought, okay, the, the only way to go is just to take medication to deal with a lot of this. So as I got older, um, you know, I was always interested in health and diet and lifestyle and exercise. And so when I was in my undergraduate, um, you know, I was away at school. I went to, to UConn right here in Connecticut. And, uh, and I majored in nutrition because I wanted to learn about nutrition and see how I can help myself because I knew there was a dietary component, irregardless of what the conventional doctors told me that no matter what I ate, I was going to have digestive issues and asthma and allergies, that it was some genetic type of thing. So uh, when I was undergrad, I, you know, I started learning about nutrition and this was like before internet and stuff. So I was in the library reading all about you know, diet and supplements and nutrition. And I was able to actually get my asthma, allergies and digestive issues under control on my own. So I'm thinking, you know, if, if I, you know, young guy, I didn't really know much. Um, if I could do this for myself, there's got to be people out there like me suffering and not getting the help that they need. So that's what led me into, you know, getting my undergraduate degree in nutrition and exercise science. And at the time, I was looking for, a, a, you know, something I could do that was in the healthcare field. I looked into becoming a nutritionist, but then I stumbled across this profession as a naturopathic physician where, you know, we anything that falls under that alternative medicine um, umbrella, herbs, acupuncture, diet, lifestyle, um, homeopathic medicine, physical medicine. So I, I was like, this encompasses everything I'm looking for. And right around that time, when I was graduating from UConn back in the, the late 90s, uh, a school had opened in um, Bridgeport, Connecticut, and about an hour away from where I lived, and it was a naturopathic college. So I checked it out. I actually met with a couple doctors in the field, and I was sold instantly. And I said, this is what I have to do. And then, you know, 21 years later, I'm still trucking along and uh, helping as many people as I can. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, In medical school, do they teach doctors about nutrition? So in conventional medical school, I mean, I have a lot of friends and colleagues that are conventional doctors, 
And I always tease them. I say, you know, how many hours of uh, education did you get in nutrition? And they're literally, they just laugh. They're just like, we got zero training. So, yeah. you know, it, it may have been like a, you know, a couple hours here or there, but it was very rudimentary nutrition, just kind of RDA stuff, not teaching you how to treat disease and overt pathology by using, you know, diet, lifestyle, supplements, nutrition, and so forth. So, yeah, most doctors, they're not trained in that. They're trained heavily in, um, you know, drugs and surgery and other other types of conventional treatments. Mm -hmm. um, you know, my training, you know, I learn about everything. I learn about the conventional way of treating through drugs and surgery. My diagnostics, you know, I learn, you know, physical exam. I learn, you know, how to read an x-ray. I order blood work, you know, a lot of blood work actually. And that, that's what helps me out kind of figure out what's going on with people. Right. And, um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's yeah. a different, different, uh, different way of thinking when you look at well, naturopathic medicine compared to conventional. Why do you think they don't teach you more about nutrition in, in medical school? Well, I think that, you know, I, if you go back in time, you know, at the advent of, um, you know, the big medical schools and everything, um, I think it was like the Rothschilds that started all this. And, you know, back then it was like, let's make some, let's make drugs that petroleum based drugs and uh, we'll poo poo anything that's natural, anything that's alternative. And we'll, we'll teach teach the, you know, the, the incoming conventional doctors that, the only way that you can treat is by using drugs. You know, the, the, the old school way of, um, you know, the old, you know, town doctor that would, you know, treat with diet and lifestyle and maybe use some drugs here and there that was gone by the wayside. You know, mm -hmm. so you look back in time and it's been, you know, it's a, the big medical industrial complex. It's tons of it's money. You basically with anything, you know, that you follow the right, money, right. you know, you can't make money off really, you know, uh, uh, something that you can, you know, an herb that you can get in your backyard or, you know, a dietary supplement. There's no patent on those. You can't really patent a natural substance, but you can patent a derivative of a natural substance. You know, you can take an herb and figure out what the active constituent is and extract it and then turn it into a drug and patent it. But unlike the herb, the drug will always carry some degree of a side effect. Because you can't just isolate one compound and expect not to have repercussions. You know, it's interesting. I, I always use the analogy. Um, there's, you know, if, if, you know, salicylic acid is aspirin, okay? And by itself, salicylic acid can cause micro bleeds in your stomach. It can cause ulcers. Well, salicylic acid is prevalent in many plants. In fact, there's, there's many herbs out there that have salicylic acid in them. But there's other protective mechanisms in the plant, other compounds that will prevent ulceration and actually is good for the digestive tract. So, you know, when you isolate compounds, you make them into a chemical, that's where the side effects come from. So, Gotcha. Wasn't yeah. it the Rockefeller family that was uh, involved with um, yes. changing yep. the medical system? Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah. Um, what kind of medicine did doctors prescribed before the common use of uh, pharmaceutical drugs, would you say? Well, I think, you know, it was more of what I'm doing, you know, plant-based medicine. You know, they used a lot of plant-based medicine. Um, they would do, you know, things like hydrotherapies and stuff, you know, the the application of hot and cold and, and, and um, you know, they would do saunas. They would just, you know, getting back to our roots, you know, they but it, a lot of it was, um, you know, natural based. And then once that 
fell out of favor for these more petroleum-based, chemical-based drugs, that was kind of poo-pooed. They would use, um, they would even use, you know, drugs that were derived from animal products. You know, the first thyroid medication is derived from porcine thyroid. And to this day, I still use that in my practice, uh, porcine glandular thyroid extract to treat hypothyroidism opposed to using a synthetic molecule like Synthroid or level thyroxine. Yeah. Gotcha. So we've like basically completely revamped the whole medical system in a sense. Um, um, now, recently, I, I noticed like on Instagram and um, different social media sites, there's there's a lot of trendy diets and there's a lot of influencers yeah. that have a lot of diets like um, Liver King. Yeah. Who, uh, recently, there's some controversy about him taking yeah, steroids. Yeah. And then um, there's Carnivore MD. And then there's other guys on on Instagram who are like herbalists. And um, so you have like all these different um, various influences promoting these different diets. One focused on like carnivorous diets and then veganism and yep. um, things like that. I mean, what are the what are the upsides and downsides of let's say I guess let, let's start with a vegetarian a vegetarian sure. diet or a vegan diet? So, you know, you can look at there's a million diets out there, and you know, when I was in medical school, I had the opportunity, you know, as part of my curriculum, some of my classes, we had to actually you know partake in certain types of diets for certain lengths of time to see you know which ones jived with you you know. So I did a vegetarian, I did a vegan diet, I did, you know, a keto diet, um, you know, you did a, a low fat diet, we tried every diet. So just to see what jived with me and where other, you know, people in my, my classes, you know, some of them did great on specific diets and then some did God awful. I did God awful on vegan and vegetarian diets. So when it comes down to diets, I think it's super individualized and that's one of the things that I try to do with every single one of my patients is I try to individualize everything. It's not a one size fits all model. That's what differentiates naturopathic medicine from conventional, where it's kind of like this algorithm based, you know, protocol driven type of treatment plan. When you look at conventional medicine, for me, I could see 20 patients with the same diff same type of complaints and prescribe 20 different diet plans or modifications of a certain diet and 20 different protocols. So getting back to your question about vegetarian and veganism, you know, once again, I have patients that do really well. I find that vegetarian, especially veganism, is um, a very difficult diet to really do appropriately. Um it's, you know, it's, it's hard to get all of the nutrition and everything you need when you're really restricting and limiting your diet so severely. I find that with a vegan diet, it tends to be hot, much higher in carbohydrates, um, a lot more grain products because you have to fill the void there. And um, a lot, you know, obviously plant-based foods, but a lot of people will gravitate towards more processed plant-based foods, you know, fake this, you know, fake cheese and, you know, fake burgers and things like that. So I feel, in my opinion, and, you know, this is just me and from what I've seen, my sickest patients, the people that I see that are the sickest across the board are, the, are my vegans and vegetarian patients. Um, they lack a lot of different nutrients. It takes a lot of work and to really do a proper vegan vegetarian diet um, by getting everything. I mean, there is no vegan source of B12 in, in, in that type of diet. So you have to supplement with B12. 
um, omega-3s. Yes, you can get them from plant-based sources, but some people can't metabolize plant-based sources of omega-3s properly. So they tend to lack that. Vitamin A. Vitamin A, well, beta-carotene is the is the inactive form of vitamin A that needs to get converted in the body to vitamin A. So you can get beta-carotene from your vegetables and so forth, but straight vitamin A you have to get from animal-based sources. So I find that vegans and vegetarians tend to be quite low in, in vitamin A, uh, especially if they have a genetic trait where they can't convert beta-carotene to vitamin A. The other thing is that you know with you know a vegan or vegetarian diet, it's, it's very hard to extract all of your nutrition from plant-based foods. Now, don't get me wrong. I probably eat more vegetables than the standard vegetarian, but I also eat, you know, quality animal-based foods to get my protein and some of my good fats from. But I find that, you know, our digestive tracts are really not designed to solely eat plant-based foods because there's lots of fiber, a lot of cellulose in the in in, in vegetables. And so they're kind of locked in. A lot of those nutrition nutrients are locked in. And the only way you can extract those in certain instances is through fermentation. Okay. So if you look at animals in nature that thrive on more of a you know vegetarian type of diet. So let's look at a cow for example. A cow can thrive on eating grass. Okay. We can't thrive on eating grass. So a cow has a relatively long digestive tract, four stomachs in contrast to humans who have a relatively short digestive tract. And so mm-hmm. the way that a, a cow will extract nutrients from a blade of grass is through bacterial fermentation. So think, you know, like what sauerkraut is. So sauerkraut is cabbage, okay? And you, you can lacto-ferment cabbage and it breaks down the cellulose. It extracts a lot of the nutrition. So there's probably triple the amount of nutrition in sauerkraut than there is in cabbage itself because the bacterial fermentation unlocks a lot of that nutrition. The same thing happens in animals' bodies, in their digestive tract. We don't have a a digestive tract that's based on fermentation. Yes, we can ferment some foods in our large intestine. If we ferment too much, we get a lot of gas and bloating and and so forth. Um, And our stomachs will get big and distended. And so... uh, we have a hydrochloric acid-based digestive tract, okay? So our bodies are designed to break down, you know, animal-based foods a little bit better than, you know, our vegetarian counterparts in terms of the animal kingdom. I mean, you look at uh, um, animals like, you know, monkeys and, you know, apes and things like that. They consume more of a vegetarian type of diet. They, that's what they do. But they have these big bloated stomachs. If you ever look at a, you know, a monkey that gets this big bloated stomach, well, they have yeah. a relatively longer digestive tract so that they can extract the nutrition from the food. So I find that more of a combined, you know, veg, you know, lots of good vegetables, lots of good quality fats, and then quality animal-based proteins, grass-fed meats, wild-caught fish, pasture-raised pork, you know, free-range eggs and so forth. So, and you don't have to eat large quantities of that, but it comes down to the quality. You want the best quality possible when available. Right. Yeah. So that's the kind of, that's what I, that's my, my little spiel on vegan and vegetarianism. Listen, I have patients that do very, very well. They have to take a fair amount of supplements to, to, because when I run blood work on them, I see what's going on in the background. That's the big thing. And that's where the individualization of the diet comes into play is when, you know, I can 
take someone's history, do a physical exam, and I get half their story. The other half of the story comes when they come back to see me for their second visit, and I run a slew of blood work on them, including a food sensitivity test, so I know what foods may be good for them and what foods may be poison for their body. So once again, individualization. And like I said, people can do great on a keto diet. Some people do god awful on it. Some people do fantastic on a vegetarian diet. I was not one of those people. You know, I have to eat more of a well balance between the fat, protein, and carbs. Got gotcha. Yeah. Um I noticed that meat recently, well, I don't know if I should say recently, but I guess maybe for a while, meat has been getting a bad reputation. And even when I was growing up, I would hear, I would read some books about vegetarianism and how meat is bad. And I think even now, like there's a promotion of meatless burgers and more veganism, more vegetarianism. Why do you think meat is getting a a bad reputation? Well, the big thing is this. Once again, you have to talk about the quality of the product. So I'm opposed to factory farmed meat where they're pumping animals full of antibiotics and so forth and they have them in pens on top of each other and they're feeding them grain products or you know products that are unnatural um, to their you know what they should be eating like cows should be eating grass plain and simple. But what do they feed them? They feed them corn to fatten them up. okay How do you fatten up a human? You, you feed them tons of carbohydrates and corn. And that's how they're that's how they're fattening up these animals. So the meat profile in an animal that's eating an unnatural diet for them is going to be typically unhealthy. Okay, so you know I agree with you know that whole concept of you know garbage meats, you know something you would you know factory farm meats. But when you're looking at quality organic grass fed, it's a whole different animal. It's a whole different pair. You're getting much more nutrition much more healthy fats opposed to, um, you know, what you would get from factory farm meat. You're going to get more toxic dietary fat in there, more what's called arachidonic acid, which is more inflammatory. Whereas when you eat more grass-fed meat, you're getting better quality. You're getting some omega-3s in there. You're getting better quality fat, fatty acids, better quality protein. So um, I can see where people are, are going, but then it needs to be, you need to hear the other side of it. You're not hearing that. You're hearing meat is bad. You know, vegetables are good. Yes, vegetables are fantastic, but a lot of the plant-based foods that are out there are very processed. You look at these impossible burgers and things like that. There's more chemicals in those things than there is, you know, it's, it's like, you know, it's just eating uh, fake food. And I would rather eat a grass-fed burger any day of the week than eat one of these plant-based burgers that has you know, 50 different ingredients in there, you know? So yeah, not good. Uh, yeah. I'll take a beef, bur- a real beef burger over a Absolutely. Bill Gates burger any day, yeah. you know? Um, yeah. Cause when you were, you were, you mentioned that some of these uh, meats are manufactured in plant factories and stuff like that, but yeah. that also applies to these meatless burgers. Like that stuff is pretty well, yeah. much manufactured. Well, they're, all chemicals. they're all basically chemicals. You know, they'll put like They'll use, you know, they'll use soy, a lot of soy in them. A lot of it's genetically modified. So soy is like the number one genetically modified crop, you know, that and corn. And so, yeah, it's cheap. They put it, you know, they put it and they tout it as a health food when it's really not, you know, they put, um, you know, lots of different chemicals in there to make it taste good. You know, how good can a a soy burger taste? So they add a lot of sodium to it. They add a lot of other flavoring agents and so forth and tout it as a health food because it's 
meatless, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, Our ancestors thrived on, you know, the meat and organs and the fat of animals for many, many years. We wouldn't be here. Um, we survived, you know, as a people, we've survived multiple ice ages and so forth. And we thrived on, uh, you know, it wasn't because they were eating, you know, they weren't eating soy burgers. That's for sure. <laughs> so, you know, when you really think about it, you know, you look back at our ancestors and we've kind of gotten away from that. We've gotten away. From, we, it's this factory, you know, this this just chemical based foods. You know, when we we saw increases in a lot of diseases once we've gotten away from our standard, you know, um, you know, ancestral diet of eating, you know, good quality meats and organ meats and good quality fats and, you know, cooking with lard and good fats you know, um, from good quality sources. We switched over to, you started using Crisco oil, you know, back in the, you know, 60s and 70s, you know, so that was a, a fake fat, you know, a hydrogenated fat. And now we find out later on that all these so-called healthy vegetable oils like canola oil, they're all garbage. They're all rancid oils and they contribute to a lot of health problems today. You know, the, you know, um, cardiovascular disease, diabetes and so forth. So, um, it's, it's all about the quality. And that's one of the things that I stress to my patients is really don't get bent on like what you're hearing in the media. You have to take all that stuff with a grain of salt. We know that and do your due diligence, critically think and look back at how, you know, look back at the history just because it's something new and the latest and greatest doesn't make it good for you. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess, you know, when when David slew Goliath, he probably had a steak before that, you know, and not a veggie burger. So, so. <laughs> a veggie burger. Yeah, um, you were talking about, um, I think, organ meats too. So yes. this guy Liver King, he yeah. he promotes like some of my I joke with my friends sometimes. One of my friends, he works out a lot, and um, when I found found out about Liver King, I saw that he was promoting like cow testicles and yeah. and. Uh, liver of course pancreas and he would just be yeah. eating some of this stuff raw just like and he would say um you know if you want to get big just eat some cowboys and just yeah. crazy stuff so i would yeah. like in, make it in, in his case take growth hormone and take uh testosterone <laughs> so yeah right. take it with a grain of salt but listen that's how our ancestors ate when you really look back in time and I, i'm familiar with him you know it's it, it, he's he, it promotes more of an ancestral lifestyle and diet and, you know, when we look back at, how, back at how our ancestors ate, they did eat that way. They would actually coven the, you know, the organ meat and they'd actually, you know, throw the, 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 the muscle meat to their animals. You know, that was the that's how they survived. That's where all the nutrition is 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 found. You know, it's kind of fallen out of favor in today's day and age. Not a lot of people like organ meats and things like that. Um, but there is a lot, a lot of value to it. I mean, it's just we've gotten away from it. You know, we've gotten away from doing that. You know, if we, you look back, I mean, I remember, you know, uh, I'm, I'm in my late forties. I remember having, you know, liver and onions and, and, and bacon liver, you know, when I was younger, my wife, my, my mother used to make it. Um, how many people are doing that these days? Not a lot, you know, not a lot. So um, that was, that was actually, well, when I was growing up, um, it was kind of like a West Indian, um, tradition or custom okay. to eat, uh, liver and green bananas. Okay. Yeah. So uh, when I was growing up, yeah, I had I had um, some liver. 
growing up. Yeah, we used to. Yeah, and it was, and it's a fantastic. You know, if you're getting, you got to get good quality. You got to get, you know, organic. You know, grass from grass-fed animals and so forth. And there, it's loaded with nutrition, loaded with nutrition. But one of the things that kind of made it fall out of favor, I think, was you know, liver is a food that's high in cholesterol. And we'll we'll get into the whole cholesterol thing. But you know, where cholesterol has been as a food has been demonized. You know, on a blood test, you know, the, you know, conventional medicine, the lower, the better as far as cholesterol goes. And we're going to talk a little bit about that if we have time, you know, um, kind of debunking the myths surrounding, um, you know, cholesterol as being this, this, this poisonous agent that's in our body that's going to indefinitely promote heart disease and whatnot. There's nothing further from the truth. Once again, the cholesterol in your body comes down to the quality of it. And we'll, we'll get into that, you know, if we have time, definitely. Yeah. 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 And I also wanted to touch on seed oils later on as well, but, um, big topic. um, so I just want to bring up COVID a little bit. Um, sure. COVID, I would say for me, I mean, it was the biggest, well, I've never seen a pandemic like this on, on this scale. I'm, I'm still in my thirties, but, yeah. um, I mean, it was like, I would say world changing in my opinion, I, I would say it's probably the, the closest thing to, as far as the, the impact it had globally, um, I would compare it to nine 11. Um, when it comes to the health protocols that the government recommended, like, um, you know, social distancing, staying in your house, um, getting vaccinated. In your opinion, do you think that they took the right approach? And and if not, why so? I think the approach that they took was completely backwards. I think that it 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 made things a thousand times worse. Um, you know, when I saw it, when when the pandemic hit that's what you want to call it, a pandemic. Um, you know, really, when you really looked at the research, you start really critically thinking, you know, when it first started, no one knew anything about it. You know, they didn't know how to treat it. They didn't, you know, they didn't do, they didn't come out with saying, you know, they're all in their mind was, okay, we need to. So they came up with these, these suggestions that had, that were not rooted in science. There's no research study showing that wearing a mask is going to prevent um, you know, an aerosol virus from, you know, from get contracting an aerosol virus. You know, when they were saying, you know, wipe down your packages when they come in, that was completely wrong. Um, the social distancing thing, there's no research out there showing that social distancing works, you know, six feet, where they come up with that. It was just someone's just interpretation, you know, and they just, they went with it, you know, the powers that be, the so-called experts. So, when I saw this all coming down, I said, you know, this is a virus. Okay, so what do I have? What tools do I have in my toolbox to deal with viruses? I've been in practice 21 years and I've treated every type of virus under the sun and very, very successfully. And a lot of it came down to, you know, diet, lifestyle, nutrition, which no one was talking about. You know, when it first came out, it was just, okay, let's wash your hands and wear the mask and all this. But no one was talking about early treatment parameters. And that's when I went to work right away and started putting together protocols of things that I did historically, you know, in treating colds and flus and other types of viral infections with great success. Once I started implementing it with patients that I started seeing in my practice and it was in, in no one's, no one's really even talking about, you know, um, any type of, you know, early treatment to this day. I mean, yes, now they have Paxlovid, this antiviral drug that, 
I'm not impressed with. I think, you know, it causes rebound COVID to come back and it can make things worse. And it has a lot of interaction with other drugs. I mean, if you look at an old drug like ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine, you know, there's plenty of research out there and, you know, a good quality research. And, you know, that was poo-pooed because it was an old drug and they couldn't make money on it. They couldn't monetize it. And then the other drug that they came out with that they said was the only FDA approved drug once people got in the hospital was remdesivir. And remdesivir was kind of a failed Ebola drug. And they found when you really looked at the research studies, half the people that took the drug in the trials had kidney failure. Now, if you're going to put a person on this drug that has a 50% chance of kidney failure that has a lung issue, that's a recipe for a disaster. And I've seen this with patients who, you know, went to the hospital and they were doing pretty good and they may have been just dehydrated or maybe needed a little oxygen or whatever it was. They put them on remdesivir. The next day they were in dire straits. They have to put them on a ventilator. And the whole thing with the ventilator, I think that was a big misstep. I think that was an enormous misstep. I think that killed more people, you know, putting people on ventilators and doing those things. I would have, you know, put someone in a hyperbaric oxygen chamber. I felt I feel that that would have probably done a hell of a lot better in terms of tissue perfusion of oxygen. So, you know, we don't they don't they didn't talk about vitamin D. Ninety percent of people that end up in a hot and end up in the hospital with severe covid have low vitamin D levels. You know, um, you know, we I, in my practice, I have a whole protocol that I put together all based upon research. And, you know, I'll use, you know, um, in lieu of drugs like hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin, I use, you know, plant based medicine. So I'll use something called quercetin, which is a bioflavonoid derived from fruits and vegetables. It works in a similar fashion to how hydroxychloroquine works. It works to help zinc get into the cell and eradicate the virus. And then talking about the the vaccines, let's let's jump into that because there's yeah. no surprise with that. Those didn't work. They really didn't work, and they still don't work. And I don't know why they're pushing them. You still get COVID. You still spread COVID. And all the death rate right now, the people that are dying, they're all people from COVID are people that have been vaccinated. So it's not lowering your your death rate. It's I think it did nothing. All it did was cause more detriment pericarditis, you know, uh, increased risk of cancer and other diseases. And there's plenty of plenty of information out there to back that. And I'm, we're seeing it's coming out, dripping out now. Whereas before that was, you know, they did a lot, you know, that you talk about misinformation. I think the CDC and the mainstream media and our government, they were the big, the biggest ones that told the most misinformation. And they suppressed actually the, the the doctors out there that were speaking the truth that were actually critically thinking and, you know, coming out with, you know, showing the research, really debunking a lot of the stuff that the CDC and mainstream media and everything was putting out there. So to say that it was managed improperly is an understatement, in my opinion. I don't think they should have locked down schools. I don't think they should have, you know, made kids, you know, stay home and so forth. I think they should have taken the model like Sweden did and develop herd immunity because at this point, yes, the vaccines came out, but the only real way to develop immunity, even with the vaccine, is to get infected because the vaccine doesn't provide you with immunity. It provides you with, you know, your body's making antibodies to a spike protein that was based on an alpha variant, the original variant that was out there. That's been long gone. 
So I don't know why they're still pumping and pushing this in the booster every, you know, now they're saying every couple months you should get a booster shot, which is outrageous. Um, you know, I've had COVID twice myself. I've never been vaccinated. I had it a year ago. I was sick for a day. I was sick on a Thursday. I was, you know, I was by Monday, I was perfectly fine with no ill effects, but, you know, I treated myself and I just had it again, you know, a month ago. I come in contact with a lot of people on a daily basis. So, you know, my immune system's pretty strong, but it's inevitable. You know, I'm not Superman. So I did get it again. And I literally, the, the, this last time, I think I was sick for one day. Next day, I was perfectly fine. I came back in the office, was doing Zoom calls with patients and so forth. So yeah. by the third day, I tested and, you know, the tests are irrelevant anyway. I don't think they're really uh, that accurate, but it was negative, mm. you know, and um, but it was definitely, definitely COVID. I knew, you know, I can differentiate that from the common cold or flu. There was just something about it that you can, you know, you felt like you were right. poisoned, basically. That's yeah, what it, it definitely feels about. different. Yeah, it was definitely different. I never, you know, I don't get sick like that, you know, so, but it was one day and I took all my stuff, all my whole protocol and that was it. And the same thing holds true for a lot of my patients. You know, don't get me wrong. There are people out there that are in poor health and when they get any type of illness, it can snowball and cause problems, whether it's a cold, a flu or a, or COVID, you know, but at this point, you know, God, I would, I would rather have COVID than than the flu or even a common cold because it was that mild at this point. So um, in what I said from the beginning, you know, with these vaccines is that, you know, one of the big things with the vaccine is that it's driving, you know, driving the person that developed this very specific immunity, you know, where you're making this, making antibodies to this very specific protein, this spike protein, this based on an alpha variant, the original virus, which is not around anymore. So when you ramp up that specific immunity, we all have innate immunity, our T cells, our first line of defense against infections and so forth. One of the problems with the vaccines is that it revs up that second half of the immune system, that V cell, that specific immunoglobulin immunity, but it suppresses your innate immunity. That's why right now we're seeing an uptick in colds and flus and respiratory infections and so forth, primarily amongst people that have been vaccinated. Because honestly, you know, I feel that the more vaccines you get, the more you develop more of an acquired immune deficiency syndrome, where you have an inability so, to fight off infections properly. Acquired immune deficiency syndrome. So AIDS? AIDS? <laughs> Yeah. So you're saying I'm not saying HIV AIDS, but AIDS acquired immune deficiency syndrome. These people that have been over vaccinated. This is just what I'm seeing. This is what I'm seeing actually in the research, too, is that, you know, this, you know, antibody dependent enhancement and so forth. We knew this from the beginning that the more vaccines you get, the more insult on your innate immune system. So your ability to fight off infections becomes much less. I'm I've never seen more. So been in practice 21 years. Over the past two years, I've never seen more cases of reoccurring cancer, new cancers, autoimmune issues, um, you know, respiratory infections that are lingering on for, and then repeat infections. I've never seen it in 21 so years. You, so you're, you're seeing a spike of all these autoimmune diseases Big time. and these it other diseases. Primarily in people that have been vaccinated, but also you know, I, I, 
people that develop COVID, I also see issues with them too. You know, they can develop, you know, some, you know, immune issues as well. Because once again, remember, with the virus, the problem is these spike proteins, you know, you know, when you look at, at the virus, that's the virulent component. And so when you're, when you catch COVID, you're exposed to these spike proteins, and that's what kind of wreaks havoc on the body. But when you get a vaccine, you abnormally turn every cell into your body into a spike protein making factory. So you're continuously making spike proteins in the hopes that your immune system will start making antibodies to them. So when you get infected, the theory is that, okay, you have immunoglobulins and you can kind of deal with it a little bit better. You're still going to get COVID. You can still spread COVID. We've, uh, we've established that, that it doesn't prevent you from getting the disease itself. So when you're the, when you're, the more of these spike proteins that you get exposed to, the more problems that it can cause in the body. And that's what we're seeing with the blood clots, the myocarditis and all these other issues that, you know, potential infertility and, and all the other problems that I see coming down the road. I mean, you look over the past two years and you look at the statistics done by insurance companies, all cause mortality, not saying death from, you know, just COVID alone is up 40% in this country for people under the age of 65. 40% increase. So what's the variable there? Well, we mass vaccinated everyone. We locked people down. We stuck, you know, left them in the house and they couldn't leave and this and that. So I think the whole big picture caused more mass casualties. So a 40% increase in all cause death is pretty significant, but no one's really touching on that. Insurance companies That's know that because they got to, they got to pay out these death benefits. That's so, crazy. Um, it's crazy. Yeah, you, you mentioned ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine. So I remember when they started, the news started mentioning those drugs. Um, <clears throat> I started reading about hydroxychloroquine and I saw that um, in ivermectin, I saw that it was a drug that's been around for years. And I yes. think one of the developers got Heavily the Nobel Peace Prize. Yeah. Right. And um, then I started reading Kennedy's book oh, yeah. on, on COVID. And um, pretty eye opening. Right. And. Yeah. I noticed I was watching MSNBC one day and they were talking about how ivermectin was used for animals and people need to stop listening to these alternative uh, health sites or alternative doctors because ivermectin is for dogs or something like that. And then I started reading about ivermectin and I read how it was being used to treat people like years ago. It was just it's been on the market forever. Um, and so at this point, I just got to I mean, you know. I don't like to be conspiratorial sometimes, but I, I have to come to the conclusion that based on the solution, so-called solution that they provided, and especially what you're telling me, it, it's almost like they're really <laughs> trying to kill people or something because, I mean, they, they have the knowledge, I, I, I would imagine. There, brother, I'm telling you, like I've treated several hundred cases of COVID in the past two to three years. None of them died. No one, none of my patients died, which is a plus. Okay. No one ended up in the hospital and everyone, no one went on to have long-term symptoms. And I didn't use any hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin. That's not part of what I do, but I've used natural agents that have similar properties as these drugs and everyone did fantastic. And I've treated patients from young, very young, all the way up to patients in their eighties and nineties. And, you know, age demographics where, you know, there's, 
you know, a higher risk and so forth. Yes, some of my patients got, you know, pretty sick because they had a lot of underlying issues, but we were able to manage it 100%. Yes, some people took a little bit longer to get better and whatnot. You know, I have patients that all they did was lose their sense of smell and taste. Then I had other people where they had, you know, pretty labored breathing and their O2 stats were down and so forth. But, you know, we were able to turn every one of them around with natural therapeutics. So, you know, the information's out there. If I was able to do it as a, you know, a small time doctor, you know, I, you know, I see a fair amount of patients and I have a pretty large, you know, large patient load overall. But if people, if doctors across the country, you know, we have how many medical schools in this country? I mean, hundreds. And not one of these medical schools came out with an early treatment guideline. You know, and the doctors that did got poo-pooed and got censored and banned and so forth. So, right. I, well, I want to ask, I mean, why do you think that the doctors would recommend something that wasn't necessarily beneficial to the patient? I mean, I would think as a doctor, I want to build a strong reputation. Rule is do no harm, right? What's that? The, the Hippocratic oath, do no harm. I mean, so that's the first thing you want to do is you don't want to, you want to do, you know, do things to not hurt the patient. But a lot of these drugs and things that they started using are causing more detriment, you know, but, but, yeah, go but ahead. why do you think, why do you think doctors would, would recommend these things if they're not going to help or even cause damage? Like, isn't that bad for business? I, I, I never understood well, when, that. The thing is this, is that they're following guidelines put out by the CDC and, and Anthony Fauci and so forth, you know, the powers that be. So if you buck the narrative, if you try to go around what the, the standard of care is, then you're considered being negligent or, you know, you're, you're doing something wrong and you, you risk, you know, losing your license or whatnot by your governing agencies, you know? So um, for me, you know, it's like, my governing agency, you know, we do everything natural. So what I'm doing with my patients is warranted, you know? So, and it's in the, the things that I'm using with them, the, the natural agents, they don't carry the ill effects that the drugs potentially do, but I, I can't answer it. I don't know what the big picture is, why a doctor, you know, cause they're, they're listening to the powers that be instead of critically thinking and looking out there. Yes, there's a lot of doctors out there that were critically thinking and came up with protocols that were outside of the remdesivir or, you know, get your get your um, vaccine and so forth. Or if you get sick enough, just go get put on a ventilator. You know, there's a lot, but those doctors got shunned, you know, because they bucked the narrative. They went against the mainstream narrative of what they need to do to deal with, with COVID and whatnot. Yeah. So that was it's- the problem. And the research was very prevalent. It was right out there. But it was just, it really came down to, you know, a select group of doctors, you know, you know Anthony Fauci being one of the, the top ones. And it was his recommendations that were put out there based on, nothing, on nonsense. You know, there's, right. you know, based on nonsense. He flip-flopped more times. And then you, you, every time you hear him talk, it's some different thing that he's saying, oh, don't wear a mask, wear a mask. The mask is useless. No, we need to wear three masks, you know, and in social, and we shouldn't go to Christmas and we should ban this and get your booster and get your shot and get this and get that. You know, it's like, when does it end? You know, when do we rely on our immune system that God gave us to, to fight off infections? You know, it's like, we, we, 
we have an, uh, an immune system. And there's plenty of things that we can do to enhance it by yeah, you know, I, one, one in particular, just, you know, dietary things, you know, cut sugar out of your diet, back off sugar, exercise, you know, get outside in the sunlight, get some vitamin D, common sense stuff, but very powerful, you know? Yeah. I've brought that argument up as far as the flip flopping with the um, with Fauci oh, and and um, the government solutions. And sometimes people say, oh, well, you know, the science is still being developed. That's why it's science, because we're still trying to perfect it. <laughs> that's that's the response. But yeah, um, isn't is evolving in to really be scientific. You have to question things. Science is not, it, it's like, you know, they oh follow the science, follow the science. OK, well. But when people question the science, they're 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 considered science deniers. Okay. And so, but that's the whole premise is that you always question things because you know, no one's always correct. You're gonna get varying opinions and, and, and things are evolving as as more information is coming out. Listen, there's still, you know, things I said two years ago when this first when this all started, now it's becoming more mainstream. Now they're talking about it after the fact. And it's like where were you? You know, it's like I knew this stuff a long time ago because I just looked at the research and I critically thought, whereas they were just, you know, they were, you know, I don't know what they were doing. You know, it's like it was mismanaged. It was mismanaged across the board. And if we look at countries that didn't follow the narrative, they fared a hell of a lot better, much, much better. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it definitely causes a lot of doubt in people's minds when it comes to the medical industry and also their doctors like like i was saying after reading um kennedy's book which i'm still reading i mean man it really it scares you as far as i know you know wanting to go to your doctor like you don't even want to trust the medical authorities anymore you won't after reading that book but and, and i remember reading about the lancet um the lancet re had to retract the study i think yeah. on hydro hydroxychloroquine and that's yeah it was a bogus study Right. And that's one of the most uh, famous medical journals. Of course. And I mean, it's like, man, if they got it wrong. Well, it I, was put out there. It was to push the narrative that they thought they could get away with it. But and they thought people would just buy it up. But, you know, when when people, you know, and just read the headlines. OK, so that's a big thing that they do. You know, patients always ask me, oh, I read this. I, I saw these headlines on this particular nutrient or this or that. What do you think? Okay, let's take a look at it. Let's actually pull the study. Let's read the actual study, not read some reporter's interpretation of it or whoever put it out there or whoever's trying to push the narrative. You also, who funded the study? You know, who, um, you know, how did they present the data? Was it a absolute risk reduction or a relative risk reduction? There's ways to kind of fudge the, the numbers, you know, where, you know, there's a modest improvement but they, they inflate it to make it look like it was a miracle type of thing that worked. You know, um, we see this in conventional medicine with cholesterol lowering drugs, like a statin drug, for example, large portion of the population are on these drugs, you know, Lipitor, Crestor, um, you know, all these drugs that block the body's production of cholesterol. When you look at the long, the, the big research studies, it says, okay, well, we followed these this group of people in this certain age demographic for 3.3 years, and there was a 33% re relative risk reduction in cardiovascular disease, in, in a cardiovascular event. But then when you go re read the research, a relative risk reduction is different from an absolute risk reduction. 
when you're looking at absolute risk reduction, you're looking at the number of patients you need to treat to prevent one heart attack. And so when you really look at the research, you have to treat 100 patients with a cholesterol-lowering drug for 3.3 years, the length of the study, to prevent one heart attack. That's an absolute risk reduction of 1%. So when you really look at the big picture there, but when they want to do a relative risk reduction, they... They'll, they'll fudge the numbers and it comes out to 33%. There's a whole equation that they use. So they can, in, they can make the research look better than it is. Drug companies do this all the time. You know, when they put a drug out there, you know, um, Tamiflu, for example, it's a drug that's used to shorten the duration of the flu. It's this nasal spray that you take and, you, you know, and it's, it's supposed to reduce, reduce your, um, the severity and the length of the flu. When you look at the research, it's, it's, it, it shortens the duration of your illness by one day, and it, it, it doesn't really do much for your clinical signs and symptoms. So you're going to take a drug that will shorten your, the day of illness by one day, but it also carries many side effects, some psychological side effects, suicidal tendencies and depression and so forth. So you look at the, you weigh the, the risk versus rewards with a lot of these drugs that are out there. And you wonder how the hell did it even make it to the market, you know, but big money, you know, they pump tons yeah. of money into it to get a patent and get it pushed through the FDA approval and so forth. And that was the, the issue with remdesivir, you know, if it didn't kill you, okay, it shortened the duration and the severity of your illness by a day. You know, that's really what it came out to be when you really look at the, at the evidence, at the studies. And so- right. I look at everything, you know, I don't take anything for face value. I always, you know, and when patients go to their conventional doctors and then come to see me, I, I ask them, I say, listen, ask me any questions you want. And if I don't know the answer, I'll go look it up and I'll show you the truth behind it. But question your doctor about it. Ask for, sh ask, say, show me the research and help me interpret the research or point me in the right direction. And, and then you like take a look at it. And read it. If you can't interpret it, bring it to me. I do it all the time with patients, especially if their conventional doctors wants to put them on a specific drug or offer a certain therapy and they're kind of iffy about it. I say, all right, listen, no problem. Maybe it's the right thing for you, but let's take a good look at it. Let's look at the research behind it. And so you, you can't take it at face value. You can't trust Oh, and it's sad. Right. You can't. Yeah, it. you, it's, it's very sad. No, it is sad because so you're dealing with people. They're supposed to be the experts. You know, you go, right. to, you know, you, you, you call on these people because of their expertise. You know, if you're if your toilet breaks, you're not going to call an electrician. OK, so it's like, you know, you, you expect okay, you bring a plumber in. He's going to be honest with you. He's going to tell you what's going on. The same thing with a physician. You know what I mean? That they're yeah. the experts in the field that they did their due diligence to research everything that they're going to push towards you or recommend for you. Yeah, it really is sad. I mean, so this whole pandemic has really just um, turned the world Listen, upside I, down. I never, I never <laughs> thought I'd, we'd be here at this point. And I'm seeing more and more consequences of mismanagement of this, this, this whole illness, uh, severe consequences, you know, from, and like I said, I, I've, I've, I had a woman the other day who, had ovarian cancer at a very young age, which is very rare. She's in her 70s. She just, within the, the past year, she developed cancer again after 50 years of not of being, not having any cancer. 
she developed cancer. She goes, I think the vaccine gave it to me. I think the vaccine suppressed my immune system and brought it on. I said, you know what? I can't deny that. You know, maybe it did. I don't know. But I know that the science behind the vaccine is that it does suppress your innate immune system, your ability to, to fight off cancer cells and so forth. So um, and fight off just the common cold. So we don't know. I'm seeing a lot of this. I had a patient who um, who developed pancreatic cancer. He was healthy as an ox. We did imaging of him, you know, um, a year prior. The variable in there was he got the two vaccines and he got two boosters, you know, in that period of time. That's the only thing that I can pinpoint that caused this to develop. You know, was was he going to develop cancer anyway if he didn't get the, I don't know. I don't know. But it, it seems a little, you know, suspicious yeah. to me where I'm seeing these patients that are, you know, healthy or hadn't had cancer in, you know, 20, 30 years, all of a sudden develop an aggressive form of cancer, you know? So That's sad, man. I, I think there should be some type, there has to be accountability and I think there should be some prosecutions. Oh, um, I, I hope so. Yeah. And the Washington, yeah, exactly. Um, Washington Post published an article uh, recently saying COVID is no longer uh, mainly a pandemic of the unvaccinated. And then um, even- yeah, even Biden said, you know, if you get vaccinated, you won't you won't get COVID. Yeah, um, so He's just reading off a cue card and doesn't even do that well. So, <laughs> um, you know, um, the other thing is before I before we go on, I wanted to just point this out that you know, the uh, Surgeon General out of Florida put out a report uh, about a month ago showing that men, in particular, under the age of forty have an 84% chance of dying of a cardiovascular event within 28 days of receiving the vaccine. That's huge, okay? 84% chance of dying, dropping dead of a cardiovascular event. And that's, so when he put that information out there, he first published it to Twitter, they blocked him, they put it down, they said, oh, it's misinformation. Then they reinstated it because it was the truth, you know, and uh, very sharp guy, um, and he did a lot of the research out there. So, I mean, in what was his conclusion? No one under the age of 40 should get the vaccine. They're trying to pump, you know, five and under with this vaccine. In that demographic, they don't even get sick. My, both my kids had COVID. They didn't even know they had it. They were sick for like half a day. They had a little, you know, they were tired and that was it. So, you know, that's, yeah. that's where they're trying, you know, the information's coming out, but it's all being suppressed because it bucks the mainstream narrative. Yeah. Sad. Very sad. Um, moving on a little bit, I sure. want to talk about testosterone. So sure. recently I've been hearing about or reading about um, men losing te or testosterone levels decreasing in men and men, men becoming weaker. Um, what, what is your opinion on testosterone? Why is it? Why are we seeing a decline? So across the board, I run... I run testosterone levels on most of my male patients, especially as they start to mature and get older and so forth. I, I run it primarily because testosterone, and no one talks about this, you know, from a cardiovascular standpoint, low testosterone is an independent risk factor for cardiovascular disease, meaning you could have perfect cholesterol, perfect blood pressure, perfect everything. If you have low free testosterone, you're at a significantly higher risk of developing a cardiovascular event. No one's talking about this, okay? And we have an epidemic right now of men with low testosterone levels. And what do I think is the causative factor? I think it's our crappy diets. I think it's a lot of the medications that are that are being used. 
I think it's, you know, potentially, you know, Wi-Fi and different, you know, things like that are, are causing dysfunction. You know, putting your phone next to your, you know, in your pocket, you know, right next to your your testicles. Yeah, that can probably have some negative effects too. We don't know. Um, but I think it's, you know, chemicals in the environment, um, you know, obesity in men. I see it in obese men are very prone to develop low levels of testosterone because when you eat lots of sugar and carbohydrates, you have lots of body fat. The hormone insulin causes the body to convert testosterone actually over to estrogen in the body. And so men don't do very well with estrogen. So you're, a lot of these men are losing testosterone in this conversion process to estrogen. And the solution for a lot of them is not to give them more testosterone in an injection form, but to you know, clean up their diet you know, use some things to kind of stimulate the body's natural production of testosterone. There's a lot of nu nutrients out there that are required for the body to make adequate testosterone. If you have low zinc levels, guess what? You're not going to be able to produce adequate amounts of testosterone. Vitamin A is another one, selenium. There's all these other different nutrients that the body requires. You need good quality fats in your diet. One of the biggest ways to lower a man's testosterone level is to put him on a cholesterol-lowering drug, like a statin drug. Why is that? Because your body needs cholesterol to form all your steroid hormones, your testosterone, estrogen, progesterone in women, your cortisol, which is your stress hormones. When you take a drug to abnormally block the formation of cholesterol, poison your liver's ability to form cholesterol, you're reducing the pool of raw material that the body needs, all these glands in the body to produce testosterone. I just saw a guy today, he's been on, he's been on cholesterol-lowering drugs for 30 years. His testosterone levels were probably lower than his wife's testosterone levels. And I said, you know, but, and he was on a cholesterol-lowering drug. I said, you know, your doctor's putting on a drug to prevent a cardiovascular event, but it's lowering your testosterone increasing an independent risk factor for cardiovascular disease. So you're trading one problem for another problem. Yes, okay, you have great, you have low cholesterol levels, but so is your testosterone. So your risk factor is just is exponentially higher. And we know that cholesterol is not an independent risk factor for cardiovascular disease. If that was true, why is it that half the people that suffer heart attacks have normal to low cholesterol levels? So independent means that Everyone with high cholesterol should be should drop dead of a heart attack inevitably. We don't see that. That's not the case. Yeah. So when it comes to um, synthetic or testosterone injections, because I notice this is becoming, it's been a popular thing. I see clinics that offer that stuff. Sure. Um, so should men stay away from those in injections? It depends. In your it depends. If someone has true hypogonadism where they're not producing any testosterone, whether it's from, you know, you know, they had an injury or they had cancer, they had a testicle removed or whatever it was, you know, I would first and foremost, before I would encourage a person to get put on uh, testosterone. And if they do get put on testosterone, it has to be bioidentical testosterone. Okay. And it has to be administered in a proper rhythm. You know, a lot of these doctors are giving patients, you know, a, a, a vial and they take an injection once a week or once every two weeks, that's not really mimicking your body's natural production. The best way to really do it, if you're going to do an injection of it, is to do it a small micro dosage on a daily basis or use a topical transdermal cream of testosterone. But all the while, 
assessing is this testosterone getting converted over to estrogen abnormally? Is it getting converted to a harmful form of testosterone called DHT that can lead to prostate issues and hair loss and everything else? So I'm not opposed to any of these things given the right circumstances, but it's not a one-size-fits-all model. If someone's 80 pounds or 100 pounds overweight, they have a big beer belly, they're eating tons of sugar and carbohydrates, and they have low testosterone, I'm not going to recommend that they get put on testosterone. I'm going to say, we got to drop some weight. We got to get you off these medications that are potentially lowering your testosterone. We got to you know, clean up your diet, clean up your lifestyle, do all of these things, and then see where we're at. Nine times out of 10, they don't need the replacement. Their levels come back to normal. Yeah. Yeah. What? If we rewind, uh, maybe let's go back to the 60s. Would you say the men back in the 60s, maybe 50s, had more testosterone than the men yeah, today? No. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, you know, compared to what I'm seeing today, I mean, I see men that are in their 30s. I run a testosterone level and I'm flabbergasted at how low it is. But then you look at their lifestyle, you look at what they're eating. You know, once again, to make testosterone, you need good quality fats. You need, you know, quality cholesterol being produced. You need certain nutrients. I feel that today, you know, pretty much a blanket statement, most people walking around are not healthy, irregardless of their age. You know, I run blood work on every patient that I see, and it's very rare that I find someone that's in really good shape that has nothing really going on unless they're being very proactive with their with with their diet and lifestyle. They've been to another doctor like myself prior to coming to see me. Um, but my goal with all of them is to get them to that level of optimal health. And I say, listen, I'm going to give you a blueprint of what you're going to need to do to get healthy. The rest is up to you. It's just as good as you want to feel. So yes, across, I think that in the past, our diets, our lifestyles were, were much more healthier. They were eating more, less processing garbage foods. They were eating real foods, you know, not stuff from a box, a bag, a can or a jar. They were eating, you know, fresh foods. And, you know, um, but then with the advent of more fast foods and cheaper foods and packaged foods and things like that, you know, that's where I saw things super, you know, really on the decline. I go back 20 years, I would say, you know, when I first started practicing, I would say that my patients were healthier 20 years ago than they are right now. I think right now in the 20 years that I've been in practice, I think patients are the sickest across the board, but there's much more variables in the mix there. Besides the crappy diet and lifestyle things and so forth, now we have, you know, this pandemic, this lockdowns, we have these, uh, you know, vaccines, we have all these other drugs that are coming out. You know, we have this, you know, this drug culture of just pop a pill and you're, you're good to go. Um, you know, escape reality. We know, you know, recreational drugs and things like that. So yeah. I, I find the metaverse. What's that? I said the metaverse. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so that's uh, kind of what we're dealing with now. And it's, it's, it's hard. It makes my job a hell of a lot harder than it was, you know, 15, 20 years ago. That's for sure. Yeah, that's crazy, man. Well, I mean, this is, this is your time to shine for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, <laughs> um, moving on to uh, like oils, seed oils. Yeah. I noticed when, when I'm at the grocery store, just about every single thing that I look at has some type of oil in it. Sunflower oil, 
canola oil, um, soybean oil, even canola oil. I notice sometimes it'll say expeller pressed canola oil. Yeah. And sometimes I think, oh, well, it, it's expeller pressed, so maybe it's healthier. I, I don't even know the difference, to be honest. But why should we be concerned about these oils? So those oils are not traditional oils, okay? They're, they're you know, see, they're very un- unstable. They're very prone to oxidation, and when you oxidize an oil, it becomes rancid and it becomes really unusable in the body. And it also promotes an inflammatory process. So when you look in the body, you know, there's essential fatty acids, omega-6s, omega-3s. You know, we do need some saturated fat in our diet. That's that's a crucial component. And it's typically demonized as the heart-clogging, you know, uh, fatty acid. But, you know, I push patients to use primarily, you know, um, you know, Stay away from those oils, you know, use, you know, um, extra virgin, you know, organic uh, olive oil, use um, coconut oil, use uh, avocado oil, use grass fed butter and ghee and uh, even lard or beef tallow from organic sources. These are the traditional oils and they're they're much more stable. They contain more nutritional value. Our bodies need saturated fat that gets incorporated into every cell membrane of our body. It's a rigid fat, you know, it's not going to clog your arteries. What we find is what's clogging the arteries are these rancid oils. So here's the thing. Um, what causes a, a lot of disease processes is a, a process known as oxidative stress in the body. Oxidative stress is when we have an overabundance of free radicals you know, reactive oxygen species and not enough antioxidants to quench those free radicals. Now, what causes free radicals? Well, our bodies produce free radicals all the time. We, you know, we have these reactive oxygen species. Part of our, how our immune system neutralizes bacteria and viruses is that our white blood cells will produce, you know, free radicals to kill the, the offending agent. And in our case, we need to have plenty of antioxidants to shield, to protect our cells, and also to protect our cholesterol. So cholesterol is a fat. And when cholesterol becomes oxidized or damaged, it becomes a useless fat. Just like, you know, you know, an oil in a, in a, in a bottle, if it's, you know, hit with sunlight and it's been, you know, there's oxygens gotten at it, it becomes over time, it becomes rancid and, and oxidized and damaged. And so it becomes useless in the body. The body can't utilize those things. It can't use a foreign oil or a, or a rancid oil to make new cell membranes or replenish the nervous system or replenish our brain tissue. 25% of the, the cholesterol found in our blood goes right up to our brain. Our brain needs it. It's, it's essential. But if that cholesterol has been oxidized or damaged or taking in oxidized or damaged oils, that's what gets, that's what gets deposited in the artery wall when we have an insult on our artery. So here's the thing. Cholesterol is a very strong healing agent. Our body needs it to make hormones. We already talked about that. Replenish the nervous system, to make cell membranes. But when we have an insult in our artery wall or we have um, an injury or so forth, our body will shuttle cholesterol to that area to heal. It's a wonderful healing agent. The problem is if that cholesterol has been oxidized or damaged, it becomes useless, okay? It's like trying to, it's like you have a crack in the wall and you're going to put some mortar in that crack, but the the mortar is too watery, so it just slips right out or it gets deposited behind the wall and it doesn't really heal anything. 
So that's what basically what is the major contributor. So these seed oils and silver that are so prevalent in, in you know, you said you go to the you go to the grocery store, you know, pick up a, a, a bottle of conventional salad dressing. I guarantee you every single one of them is going to either have soybean oil or canola oil. And guess what? Those are the most genetically modified plants on the planet. So, you know, they they you know, they, they spray them down, they, they genetically alter them so that they can spray them down with Roundup to kill all the pet, kill all the weeds and everything else. I always tell patients this story. I had a, um, a friend of mine who's a landscaper who, um, he, he was going, you know, locally, he was going to pick up some plants. It was the middle of the summertime and a lot of the plants are all dried up and everything. And he says to the guy that runs the place, he goes, what do you got growing over there in the field? He goes, you got some really green plants. How are they surviving? They're so green and lush. He goes, those are my soybean plants. I said, oh, really? Okay, can you show them? <laughs> so they walk over there. My buddy's looking down each, each row. There's not one weed, okay? And he says, wow. how, do you keep, how are they so lush? Why aren't they all dried up? Why isn't there all weeds in here? He goes, what do you, you don't know? These are Roundup Ready plants, Roundup Ready genetically modified seeds. He goes, we spray the hell out of them with, with a big boom sprayer with all Roundup. It kills everything but the plant. <laughs> I said, oh my God. Oh, so that's what we're ingesting, you know? And that's what that's what's found in a lot of these, these cheap garbage oils, you know, is that they're loaded with, you know, and we know that Roundup, there was a big lawsuit that it causes cancer, you know? And it's, it's you know, if we're going to be drinking this stuff and putting it on our salads, yeah, it's pretty dicey. You're going to increase your risk of all slew of problems. So Yeah, I mean, I, I can't find anything. Well, not anything, but a lot of things. It, it's almost like unavoidable. Even something down to like, uh, I mean, um, a cookie has oil yeah. in it. Chips. Um, they all do. Every so single thing. You have to really read labels. You have to buy ones that are you know organic or certified GMO free and so forth. So otherwise you're going to get all these crappy oils there. And that's what's going to perpetuate the, 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 the problem. You go out to eat for good luck. Good luck going to a restaurant and not getting inundated with all these cheap vegetable oils. They're in everything because they're cheap. You know, they can process a lot of it, but you know, we're, you know, buy, go buy a bottle of this big of coconut oil. <laughs> it's expensive. Okay. You buy, it's like 10 bucks for a little bottle like this. Well, you can buy a vat of, of cheap, you know, vegetable oil for 10 bucks, you know, that will, you know, you throw in a fryer later and, you know, there you go. So yeah. yeah, it's, it's all about, you know, it's cheap food. And, you know, I guess, you know, the, the argument that a lot of people make is, okay, well, we need these cheap foods so we can feed the masses. So we don't have, you know, people starving and so forth. So we need to make cheaper foods and we need to be able to do it, you know, well, that's fine. Okay. Yes. We need to feed people, but we don't need to kill them in the process too and make their health much less and drive up, you know, healthcare costs and everything else. So it's like, what are we doing here in, in, you know, your quality of life when you're not, when you're, when you're sick from eating poorly. That's crazy. Uh, I, one, one thing I've always questioned is why, like the people who run organizations like Monsanto or yep. um, even the FDA and Bill Gates, for instance, yeah. why, why would they be so involved in 
polluting the food supply when they themselves, I would imagine they have to eat the same food, right? I mean, I know, you know, I'm sure they have access to higher quality foods, but, you know, I could, I would imagine Bill Gates every once in a while, he wants a cheeseburger or something or his kids want to yeah. go to the grocery store or something. Why do you think that I think they it's all would- about money and power, man. I, I mean, that's really what it comes down to. And I, I bet you, you know, if you really looked at, it, I bet you all these people that are promoting all this stuff, they're not doing it themselves. I, you know, when you really think about it, you think all these people got vaccinated that are pushing the vaccine that really know the truth behind it. I don't think they have. And I don't think that all these people are, are eating and, and doing what they're pushing. I just don't. I think that they I think they know the truth behind it. And they're trying to cover it up with, you know, all this BS that they're they're pushing, you know. So I don't know. It's That's... you've got some evil people out there. And, you know, and God forbid you try to expose them, they'll crush you like an ant, you know. So it's like it's very hard today's day. I never thought we'd be at this particular point where you can't question things. You get censored or you get claimed as a disinformation or what, whatever it may be. Um, it's sad. It really is sad that, you know, you can't even critically think anymore. You have to just blindly, you know, um, go through and trust the science, trust these the so-called experts. Well, they're not experts in my yeah. opinion. They're really not. Yeah, I, I just always wonder why, like, if I had money and power, why would I use my money and power to destroy the same planet that I have to raise my children in? I, well, I just never understood that. It's because, you know, but, they have tons of money and we're the, we're, they're the elites. We're the peons, you know, we're here to serve them. I think that's kind of how they see it. They got endless money and they're just going to take care of their own. I think that's, it's this hierarchy and that's really where it's going. You can see it, you know, it's, you know, we have the, you know, our, the middle class is getting destroyed. It's getting crushed right now. You know, it, the, the brunt of everything is getting put on us as the middle right. class, you know, then you know, the elites don't care. You know, they got yeah. cooking for them. They can eat the best foods possible. They can get, they have trainers they have it so they they'll live forever you know they know that they know the process they know what's good and what's bad and right. they don't care about us oh, it's good enough for the peasants you know really when right. you think about it it's, it's kind of a sad situation but yeah. you know it's uh in that's really what we've kind of evolved to here it's kind of sad yeah eat your bugs peasant yeah exactly <laughs> Um, before we wrap up, I wanted to talk about carbs. Um, yeah, sure. personally, personally speaking, I, I try to stay away from carbs. I, I mean, I do eat some carbs, but, yeah. um, but I love carbs. I mean, I was we raised up do. on, yeah, I was raised up on rice. I come from a Caribbean background, so yeah. a lot of rice. Listen, I'm Italian. <laughs> I know. Listen, I was brought up on, you know, Italian bread and pasta and so forth. So I, listen, I'm right there with you, but the grand scheme of things is this. You know, everything in moderation, we know that, you know, we, we use that term moderation, moderation. But the big thing is that, you know, everyone walking around has their individualized ability to burn or utilize carbohydrates. Some people can get away with a boatload more than other people. And it hinges upon three factors. Number one, your genetics. Do You have a family history of diabetes, heart disease, you know, uh, any other types of issues. Well, if you do a direct family member, you're going to have a hell of a harder time managing higher amounts of carbohydrates in your diet. Number two is your metabolism. You know, what's your metabolism like? You have a very sluggish frugal metabolism. You know, you, you eat a little too much and you just, you gain a three, four pounds in a day, or do you have a relatively fast metabolism? What's the integrity of your 
thyroid gland, which basically regulates the metabolism. A lot of people walking around with dysfunctional metabolism, slow thyroid that most doctors aren't pinpointing. They're not picking up on. And then the, the fourth thing, the, the third thing is your activity level. Are you moving around a lot, able to expend these additional carbohydrates, or are you sitting on your butt? You know, a lot of today's day and age, a lot of people are just sitting around, you know, they're on a computer, they're doing this, they're doing that. So those people need to eat tremendously less carbohydrates because the grand scheme of things is this, is that when you look at the three macronutrients in your diet, you have fat, protein, and carbohydrates. When you take in fat in your diet, we're talking about real fat. We're talking about, you know, eating the whole egg. We're talking about grass-fed meats and wild-caught fish and the fats that are found in those, you know, olive oil, coconut, all good fats. The first thing your body does with those fats, and we kind of alluded to it, is it uses them to make things, to make hormones, replenish the nervous system. Your brain is a big ball of fat. We need it to, you know, um, and we can burn certain fats directly as fuel. Now, if you take in more fat than what your body can burn or form, you know, hormones or structure with, it's considered excess and your body will actually convert that fat over to glucose. And you can either burn that glucose as fuel or you will store it directly as body fat. So you see where I'm going with this. Before your body takes dietary fat and turns it into body fat, it turns it into to sugar, into glucose. Protein is next. Protein is used primarily for structural components. When we're in a pinch, we can break down protein and burn some of those amino acids as fuel, but it's predominantly used to build lean body mass and structure and so forth. But if we take in too much protein above what we use for structure, it's considered excess. Our bodies will convert it over to glucose and we either burn it or store it as body fat. Now, sugar, carbohydrates, starches, whatever you want to call them, they all break down the glucose. There's no structural value. You can't make anything from glucose. All you can do or, or carbohydrates is either burn it or store it directly as body fat in the form of what's called a triglyceride. So that's the key thing. So we have a limited capacity, every one of us, to burn or utilize carbohydrates. When we surpass that threshold, our body converts that, that glucose over to fat in the form of a triglyceride or cholesterol, which is another type of fat. And it gets can get deposited in your artery wall. It can be, it can be stored as body fat or whatever it may be. So that's the whole thing. And so one of the exercises that I have every patient do, new patient, is I have them pick two days during the week, one day on the weekend, and write down everything they're eating. Then I have them go back and quantify the amount of carbohydrates they're consuming at each meal. And then I take that number. Let's say it's, you know, 200 grams of carbohydrates a day is their average. Okay, fine. That may be okay for them. When I look at their blood work, I look at specific markers and I say, okay, this blood work represents my patient eating X amount of carbohydrates. It's way too much based upon these markers or it's you're in a sweet spot. And then we take into consideration, obviously, is the person overweight? What other conditions do they have? Are they a pre-diabetic? Do they have a family history? You know, what's the whole individualized plan? So I have patients that I have to put down an extremely low-carb diet. They have really dysfunctional metabolisms. And then I have other people that are skinny like a string bean and have really low blood sugar and so forth. They can get away with a hell of a lot more carbohydrates before it causes any problem. So I think that's me. Exactly. So there's all varying degrees. 
And so to pigeonhole and put someone into this one little model like conventional medicine does, or even these influencers on online and so forth saying, this is the best diet. You need to follow this. You need to do this vegan, vegetarian, keto, low fat. There's a zillion different ideas out there. I can, like I said, I can get 20 patients in my office and put out 20 different treatment plans. This person may be doing 50 grams of carbs per day. That person could get away with 200 and do perfectly fine. So I kind of find an, you know, a happy medium for most people. And if they go over it, okay, so be it, you know, but, and then we monitor them. We check them, you know, three months later and see where their labs look like after implementing it. Does it look better? Is it the same? What do we need to do? How do you feel? You know, so all of these things play a huge role. And that's what I've talked about in many of my books is, you know, the name of the my first book was Taking Back Your Health Through Individualized Wellness-Based Naturopathic Medicine. So, you know, no one size fits all. And in that book, I kind of walk people through how to figure out what's the best diet for you, what's the best supplements for you. You know, very, very individualized. So in this day and age of questioning conventional medicine and not knowing, you know, who to trust and who not to trust, I have to empower my patients. I have to empower people to actually take back their health and really critically think and go, you know, and have be armed with the information so that when they go to their doctor, they can question them and say, well, what about this? I read about this. What about this? You know, and aren't you going to look for this? And what are you, what are your thoughts on this? If they can't answer it, get a new doctor. That's what I say. Right. You know, your doctor works for you. If your doctor's not doing what you are asking of him, go to the next one, go to the next one. Keep find until you find someone that you jive with, that's going to take you seriously and take your concerns seriously. Because one of the biggest problems that I see is that, you know, people go to their conventional doctor or they'll come to me and yes, we're looking for overt disease or pathology. And that's primarily what your conventional doctor is looking for. Yes. Are, are you suffering from a disease or a overt pathology? If the answer is no, but you're still in, in after they've worked you up and you still have signs and symptoms, but they can't understand what's contributing to it, they'll just put a bandaid over it. Whereas in my, in my practice, we call these issues functional problems, meaning it's a you're exhibiting signs and symptoms that haven't evolved to an overt disease yet, but eventually left unchecked, it can evolve to that. So functional problems are due to primarily due to dietary shortcomings, nutrient deficiencies, hormonal imbalances, maybe food sensitivities, maybe an underlying infection that's not being addressed. So these are the root causes. In conventional medicine, they don't do very well at addressing functional problems because they don't know how to, a lot of times to address these functional problems, you have to have, be educated in diet, lifestyle, and nutrition. That was the first question you asked me. You know, how much training do conventional doctors get in nutrition? They get zero. So they're not going to say, oh, well, you're having that symptom because you're lacking B12. That's the, that's the problem. Or you're having this symptom because you're eating this food and that's probably contributing to it. So, and we ran this blood test and it showed us that you're sensitive to this food. They're not going to look at those things. So right. those things get brushed under the rug. I use the analogy. It's like driving by a burning building. And instead of putting out the fire, you smash the fire alarm. The fire alarm is telling you there's something going on in the background. Something's burning. There's a little fire going. Let's put the fire out. Let's figure it out. And so yeah. when I work someone up, 
you know, I spend a lot of time with my patients, you know, initial visit, we're spending, you know, at least an hour going through everything. I'm gathering as much information as possible. And if the person's in front of me, I'll do a physical exam on them. We'll go through and uh, we'll look at any concerns that they have. And then the rest of the information comes from running very, very comprehensive blood work, you know, looking at everything from A to Z. I know doctors that are out there that don't even run blood work on patients. Like how the hell can you practice without looking at what's going on inside of their body, their physiology and in yeah. running the proper blood test. And one more thing to note before we, you know, move on, but you know, one of the problems with how conventional doctors evaluate blood work is that they look at the reference ranges based upon ranges that are not based on wellness ranges. They're based on statistical ranges. So for example, if you go to a doctor and you they want to check your thyroid gland, for example, which regulates your metabolism, the reference range is about this wide. It's very, 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 very wide. And so if you fall within this range, you're considered normal, irregardless of your clinical signs and symptoms. So you could have blaring symptoms of low thyroid, but if this one particular marker falls within this range that's based upon the population as a whole. So what they do is they take the last thousand patients that have gone to a lab, particular lab in your age demographic, and they say, okay, what's the average level for this particular marker? They go two standard deviations to the right, two to the left. They make a bell-shaped curve and they say, okay, you're normal if you fall within this range and we're not going to do a damn thing about it. And if you have symptoms that correspond to thyroid, but your levels are in this range, we're just going to treat that symptom with whatever it may be, which is pretty sad. So that's where I kind of look outside the box. And and one of the benefits of the first book that I wrote, my Taking Back Your Health book, is that I give the reader my specific reference ranges based upon wellness ranges, based upon all the research that I've done over 20 years of seeing patients and knowing, okay, this is a really good range. This is a really terrible range, you know, so pretty interesting. Yeah, definitely. Um, wrapping up, uh, there was a few things I wanted to touch on real quick. Um, CMOS, I've been seeing a trend with CMOS on social media, like everybody's selling CMOS gel yeah. and pills and all this stuff. Um, what's your take on CMOS? I know it's, it's been around for years. But it's been around for years. And, um, you know, one of the values of it is that it does contain... Um, you know, a variety of different nutrients. One of the benefits of it is that it does contain iodine. And I find that iodine is very void in, you know, the standard American diet. Um, You know, the most that we get it from is from iodinized salt. We don't see people eating lots of seaweed and seafood and things like that where they're getting adequate iodine. Now, every cell of our body requires iodine to function properly. Our thyroid gland, which regulates our metabolism, which we just touched on, without adequate iodine in the diet, your thyroid is, can be potentially dysfunctional. So yeah, I haven't looked into it too heavily. I'm very familiar with, you know, some of the benefits, but you know, it's just another trend, just like anything. There's so many different trends out there, but is it the end all be all? No. Can it benefit (laughs) people? Probably, you know, certain people, you know, listen, if someone's eating a a McDonald's three times a day, a garbage diet, you put them on a multivitamin, it's going to be life changing for them. You know what I mean? So, you know, it's you you put them on anything that's any semblance of a a supplement or a food that's of benefit. They're going to see a difference when it goes from eating complete garbage to just, you know, 
changing up their diet a little bit. So is there value to it? There's value to a lot of different supplements, but you got to know when to draw the line. There's not one, like I said, there's not one size fits all. I like to do an individualized approach and see, okay, run the blood work. What does this person need? Are they lacking X, Y, and Z? Do they need this? And so that's how I determine it. I can't see into a person's body. I can pick up on potential deficiencies based on clinical signs and symptoms that they may be exhibiting and I can kind of correlate it, but I always follow up with the proper testing and whatnot. Gotcha. Um, and in, when it comes to supplements, some people f- are skeptical about supplements because they think they might get liver damage. And then sometimes you hear negative reports about supplements and you just don't know what to take because there's just a variety of different supplements. Um, what What's your take on supplements? And so- uh, yeah, how do you feel about it? Well, a big part of my practice, as you know, is I use dietary supplements as my one of my main means of treatment in, in my practice. So I, 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 I use them, but I use them in an individualized nature. You know, I, I put people on things that I feel is necessary for them, not just throwing stuff against the wall and seeing what sticks. You know, um, you know, a lot of patients will walk into a health food store and say, oh, well, I heard this is good for this, so I'll take all these things. And then you have to look at the quality of the product too. All the products that I use, I have specifically formulated to my specifications. And I have someone source all the raw material. We independently lab test it. So if I'm treating a patient with cancer, I don't want to give them a a supplement that potentially may have a carcinogen in it because I didn't test it properly or it has a certain additive or whatnot. The whole premise that, you know, um, a dietary supplement can cause liver damage or this or that. Yeah, if it's a tainted supplement, anything can cause damage or cause problems. So if there's not good, you know, oversight, they're not looking, you know, the, the company that you're using is kind of a shoddy company or whatnot, or they're just cutting corners. And there's not a lot of oversight either. Listen, I don't want the FDA all or the, you know, the government agencies all up in the you know, people's business with that, but there needs to be some standards. And I follow some good manufacturing standards for every product that I use. And I've been using the same products for the past 20 years. So they're time tested. I mean, when a patient comes in to see me, you know, um, you know, they may come in with a, a box of supplements. I may go through them and say, you don't need any of these based upon your lab work. You know, you need these three things, not these 20 things. So a lot of times patients come in, I take them off a lot of their supplements. They're thinking they're going to get more on top of that. In fact, I take them off stuff. And, you know, if I can do something through diet, lifestyle, nutrition, and whatnot, um, in lieu of putting them on a supplement, God, I'm going to do it. But if someone lives, you know, um, in Alaska and they're not getting sun, I'm going to put them on some vitamin D because they're going to, they're not, they're going to be pretty vitamin D deficient. Or if you live in, you know, where I live in, in Connecticut, you know, it's pretty dark out right now, you know, and it's like, we're not getting a lot of sun. So yeah, we need to supplement with a little vitamin D. Um, okay. So I think everyone's an individual. So would you say that like we all need some type of supplementation or can we function completely without supplementation? I feel that, you know, I've been doing this long enough and I feel that across the board, most people do require some specific nutrients. Why? Because the food supply is not ideal. Okay. We, we have, you know, and even if someone's eating like the perfect diet, um, the soil is quite depleted, 
you know, they monocrop, they, they plant the same plants in the same area. It depletes the soil. Um, you know, a lot of the foods and vegetables that we get, you know, they're, they're picked when they're not ripe, they're ripened on a store shelf or in a back of a truck somewhere as it's getting transported. So the nutritional value is very, very low in a lot of these foods. Like I said, even if you're doing organic and whatnot. So it's very hard unless you're eating like a pristine, you know, diet where you're hitting everything. It's very, very difficult to get all of the nutrients in that you need solely from your diet. Listen, I, I, I try to get people to a point where I get them eating so good and we load them up on the certain supplements. They may be taking a bunch of things initially, but down the road, it may be one or two things that they just cannot achieve adequately from their diet. And then we have to look in, we have to take into consideration um, ability to absorb and digest certain things. You know, we, I, I made, I made the comment earlier about a vegan or vegetarian diet in that whole fermentation based digestive track. You know what I mean? So if you're eating lots of vegetables and so forth, um, and you're not preparing them the proper way, um, you know, you may not be able to extract all the nutrition from it. Nutrition of a certain certain food on paper is different than what it is when it gets into your body. How do you extract those nutrients from the food? How does your body utilize it? So I would say that most people would benefit from dietary supplements. You know, there's some that I find that, you know, if someone, if someone doesn't eat fish, and they don't get a lot of good omega-3s in their diet. I find that they need the supplement. I don't eat fish that much. I eat it maybe once a week. So I supplement with, with omega-3 fish oil every single day. Like I said, I don't get a lot of, lot of sunlight this time of the year. Come talk to me in the summertime. I'm, you know, I'm very tan. I, I, I'm out in the sun. I'm making sure I get a lot of good tan in a safe way, a lot of sun. But this time of year, I load up on vitamin D. You know, there may be some times where I don't eat enough fruits and whatnot. So I don't get enough vitamin C and other nutrients. So these right. are, you know, it's very, very individualized, but I don't guess. I don't guess. Yeah. And I don't put people on stuff that I don't think is necessary. I run the lab work. I do a full physical exam. I do the history. So by the time I'm ready to put my prescription together, I sure as hell know what they need and what they don't need, you know? Got it. Gotcha. Yeah. And last question, and we'll sure. uh, plug some of your um, your sources and your books. Um, what do you say to parents who are raising their children and they may not have time to cook for their kids and they take their kids to McDonald's or some fast food restaurants? I mean, how would you, as a parent, uh, make sure that your child is getting nutrition, nutritious, nutritious foods okay. um, in a fast paced world? So I have two kids. I have a boy and a girl. My, my daughter's 13. My son is nine. And, you know, I have the, the ability, you know, my, my wife's a stay-at-home mom. She homeschools the kids and so forth. So I know what they're eating. They're eating really good foods. There's no McDonald's or anything like that. But I think my suggestion, my advice to parents that are on the run and things like that is to, is to food prep is to prepare meals ahead of time. You know, there's plenty of time during the week where, you know, on the weekends and so forth, and we do it too, where we'll cook a batch of food, we freeze it, you know, we do crock pot stuff, we do quick and easy meals that are nutritious, that aren't, you know, driving through a drive through you know. So yes, you have to go actually buy foods and, and you know, bring them home and, and, and make them and so forth. But there's a lot of quick and easy ways that you can get nutritious foods into your diet without them being junky. 
You know what I mean? Just because it's, you know, I can make food, I can make a, a really quick meal relatively, you know, quickly and it's nutritious. And in the same amount of time it would take me to take my kids to a restaurant and sit down and order, you know, I can bang that out. And a lot of times, you know, beginning of the week, we may just, you know, saute a bunch of vegetables and keep them in the refrigerator. And we use those vegetables as a side. We, we heat them up and we, you know, saute them again and we'll heat them up and eat them as a side dish, or we'll take an egg and make like an omelet out of it with the vegetables in there. So there's a lot of things that you can do. Um, and I think preparation, anyone can do it. Listen, we're never too busy for, for overall health because in the long run, if you take care of it now, the, the, the problems down the road are going to be much less. So if you're feeding your, so think about it this way. Put the time into feeding your kids properly. Otherwise, you're going to have to put the time into staying home and in, in when they're sick. Okay, so you're going to lose you're going to lose more time with your job and with everything else being at home with a sick kid that's chronically ill all the time because they're malnourished and not eating the right foods and they're lacking specific nutrients or they have some other issue or taking them to doctor's appointments just to deal with symptoms that they're exhibiting. So. That's my take home for most people. It's very, very doable. You know, um, you know, I have a lot of patients, you know, both husband and wife work and, and whatnot. So um, and then, you know, when the kids get old enough, you teach them good habits in terms of how to cook and fend for themselves and just give them good advice along the way. You know, a lot of it comes down to convenience. I see a lot of parents, they know what they need to do, but they figure, OK, well, it's easier just to do this. Well, you can, you can, there's a lot of services out there that have good quality, nutritious foods that are already, you know, pre-made and so forth, or just, you just something that's already pre-made and you can, there's a lot of services that you can do online with organic foods and, you know, you know, grass fed meats and so forth. And you just, you know, it's already prepared. You throw it in the oven and, 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 and heat it up. So yeah. there's no way that, you know, those, that excuses doesn't go too far. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm kind of surprised McDonald's is still in business, but then again, not surprised. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's, I don't even think it's food. <laughs> I, I don't think it is either. And I think, I think as people get a lot more educated, the the whole fast food industry is kind of, and you can see a lot of these fast food industries are trying to appeal more to a healthier type of you know uh, foods and so forth. But it's you know it's still kind of a half ass healthy. It's not right. not super healthy, you know. But they're yeah. they're promoting some other things because they know that they have to do that. Otherwise they'll go out of business. Right, exactly. And lastly, where can people get information as far as what you were talking about, how to maintain their health and so on? Where can they go to so get some the of the best thing to do is just go right to my website. It's uh it's draita.com D-R-A-I-E-T-A dot com and everything that I talked about all my books my 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 ebooks are up there my dietary supplements there's plenty of videos and there's all different information and stuff to read and then you can um, I, I post pretty readily on social media on, on on Facebook and on um on Instagram I put up a lot of health uh, health tips and things so my you can go just to um it's you know at dr Aida at D-R-A-I-E-T-A. And that's, you know, facebook.com forward slash Dr. Aida and put a lot of information up there, um, share a lot of videos. My whole thing is this. I got to educate people and an educated, you know, educated population is is what we what we're striving for, you know, to prevent chronic disease and illness. And so you got to take it back into your hands. You can't rely on the conventional 
doctors. Yes, if you get hit by a car, you're having a heart attack, go to the hospital, go see your conventional doctor, do what you need to do. But when it comes down to diet, lifestyle, nutrition, you got to got to go beyond that. You can't be asking your conventional doctor for dietary advice because they don't know it. They don't have any. They can't give that to you. And even the mainstream, you know, nutritionists and registered dietitians and so forth, they're still in that medical model where they're just looking at a food pyramid that's so antiquated that makes no sense where the base of the pyramid is all starchy, sugary carbohydrates. I mean, so it makes no sense to me. So I, yeah. I encourage everyone to kind of, you know, get out there, take back your health. And, you know, we need to do this, you know, ASAP. Definitely. Well, thanks for your time, Dr. Aida. I appreciate it. This was a good conversation and uh, hope to continue it in the future. Yeah, I'd love to do it again. I'll come back anytime. I got plenty to talk about. Absolutely. All right, man. Take care. Okay, have Bye a good bless. one.